In today's episode, we're going to discuss comic opera, its origins, and its future in the opera world. Opera is perceived and perpetuated as serious in TV films and cartoons. Do we believe this high art form is too lofty for jokes? It is painted in a limited perspective that leads people to believe the art form takes itself seriously and will bore you to tears. Why are new operas also serious? Have we forgotten the incredible impact of satire, farce, and witty jokes? That's what we're going to discuss today. I hope you enjoy. Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. I'm Rachel Moss, the host, and this is my co-host, Mike Heitman. You can learn more about our podcast at www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. No, I'm good. That was great. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start off with just a very brief history of comic opera. Its origins were born out of the Commedia dell'arte theater form in Italy, which used different masks that represented stock characters or archetypes and used improv and sketch comedy. This was first put with music in 1637 in an opera, or we're going to call it an opera, by Rispigliosi and Mazziocchi. And this opera was called Chisofrisperi. And then a second opera in 1653 called Dal Mele Bene, again, involving Rispigliosi and... Um, composers Abatini and Marazzoli. And then we have this, you know, rich history of comic operas particularly being done in a particular theater in Naples, Italy. And the one opera in this hundred period time hundred year time period that is still performed today is La Serva Padrona, which is an intermezzo, um, a small short opera played between the acts of a serious opera, and that is by Pergolosi in 1731. And the one other major opera that led to the creation of comic opera and opera buffo is the Beggar's Opera, a ballad opera that was written in 1728 by John Gay in England. Ballad operas were satire musical plays that used some of the conventions of opera, but without recit, so they had spoken dialogue. They used music, uh, popular ballads, opera arias, church hymns, and folk tunes, and then set their own lyrics to it to create a story. After 1750, we really saw a huge breadth 
of operas um, being composed in this comic opera style. Um, think about all of the Mozart art operas, The Marriage of Figaro, Così fan tutte, The Abduction from Seraglio, and then nearly every Rossini opera, La Cenerentola, The Barber of Seville, Comtori, and several others throughout history that are in this comic style. So why then, if we have uh, a well-documented history of comic operas, and comic operas still being done today, is opera only represented in popular culture as being serious? What are your thoughts, Mike? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and I think you can kind of look at it from the perspective of how our country is with other things. And I don't think that this is an overt thing necessarily, but it's something that just hasn't been corrected. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. And that is narrative. Okay? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into political and social stuff about it, but we know that narratives are powerful, right? If you say a thing over and over and over again, whether or not it is true or not, uh, people tend to believe it. In our culture, when we see opera not in the opera house, it's always either in some serious form uh, in a movie or in a commercial or, I mean, it's not just opera, classical music too, but how many times have we heard something from Carmen or The Marriage of Figaro in like a beef commercial or, <laughs> or I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's just people don't know what they don't know. And so that's honestly one of the things that both Rachel and I are passionate about is just introducing opera in a way that helps open people's eyes. And comedy, I think, is honestly the easiest way. Now, of course, we talk about with our friends and we get the question a lot, you know, well, if somebody's new to opera, then what, what are like the top three or five shows you would have them go and see as the first thing? And yeah. nine times out of ten... We pick a comedy. Now, granted, you have ones that are kind of a mix. Like, Bohem is a mix. It is very dramatic, of course, but there are some pretty funny moments in it. Uh, Carmen is mostly dramatic, but it's got great music. And I would say after that, I mean, maybe Traviata, you might do that one as a first one. But all the rest are going to be comedic. You know, the Giovannis, the the Figaro's, the Barbara Seville's, the uh, anything by Offenbach pretty much if you want to go that route or even uh pirates of penzance which isn't full opera but at least closer yeah it's funny if uh, talking talking about uh suggestions i always suggest um the magic flute or something like the barber of seville people have suggested madam butterfly as a first opera i don't suggest that one as a no. first opera no <laughs> bad idea jeans are on that person um <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's a horrendous idea uh unless uh, well i'm not going to get into why a person may or may not think or may want to go to that as their first one because i don't think it's my yeah. place but uh yeah that's I, I think it's just easier to draw people in with comedy i mean especially in these trying and unprecedented times we need livety we need something that takes us out of our potentially really horrendous lives i mean that's always been my feeling about what performance art is especially i mean you can of course get it from other forms of art it's just easier for me at least to connect with performance art and it's to take you if only for three minutes of a choral piece in a concert you can listen to the whole entire other thing but there's that three minute song whatever it is that just moves you that is the whole point 
And so I think connecting with people is a lot easier through comedy and just silliness right now, especially than going for the scene where Lucia goes crazy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to go maybe into a more analysis of a few of these comic operas? Let's talk about one of these infamous comedic operas. I think the top five, in the top five, I think pretty much every every opera singer and opera aficionado, whether or not Mozart is their favorite composer, I think most people would say in within the top five, The Marriage of Figaro is one of the best comedic operas ever written and completely relatable, even though it it's talking a lot about the power struggle between nobility and the lower class and all that stuff. It's a great opera. And so we'll just talk a little bit about the plot. And I think you'll see that these are, well, if we take aside the nobility angle, but we just talk about power struggles, I think you'll see these kinds of situations are really not that different from a lot of things we see in, you know, on Netflix and and all that stuff. So we start off beginning of the show. It's Figaro and Susanna's wedding day and the by the way the subtitle for this is the day of madness which holy cow it's a crazy day it's even weird (laughs) to even think about this all happening within one day supposedly in Beaumarchais original book this all takes place in one day which Beaumarchais this is book two of the trilogy that has the marriage of Figaro which is the second book the Barber of Seville is the first one. So ironically, the second book was composed first before the, at least in the popular versions of these shows, because there are other versions of The Barber of Seville, for yes. example. Yes. I can't remember if there's another version of Figaro, but so, okay, Barber of Seville, Marriage of Figaro, and then The Guilty Mother, which there was eventually one of those written uh, in the 1970s. I know it's in, like, it's after 1950. Uh, and then, of course, we have a, a side thing, which is The Ghost of Versailles, which is a Corleano opera, but well, that's a separate thing. As everyone who has been married or been a bridesmaid knows, your wedding day is crazy. Like I mentioned, it's the day of their wedding. We come in. Figaro, like a lot of dudes. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm putting, I'm, I'm throwing us under the bus here. We're thinking about only certain things on the wedding day, especially if you look at that time period where everybody waited to uh, consummate their marriage, or at least a lot of people did. That was kind of the norm. He starts off the show measuring their room that they just got from the count, which is in a different part of the the palace, uh, for the bed that's going to go there. He's got one track mind. So anyway, he's measuring it, and Susanna comes in, and she's like, hey, Figaro, check this out. But he's just like so intent on figuring this thing out. Where's the bed going to go? Is it going to go there? Is it going to go here? And she has her veil. And she's like, Figaro, look at me. I have the veil for our wedding. He's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, it looks beautiful. It's cool. Whatever. Uh, I got this bed thing going on. And eventually she gets his attention and he looks at her and he realizes that, yes, she looks beautiful and he gets excited. And okay, so they sing this duet. Well, first she's like, "What, what are you doing, dude? And he's like, well, I'm measuring the uh, the bed for our new bedroom. And I'm like, wait, we have a new bedroom? Who got us the new bedroom? It's like, the Count did. She's like, the Count got us this? You realize it's next to his, like, office. Basically, the whole point from the Count's perspective is to get both of them closer to him. Figaro believes it's because it's to help him with his job. Because Figaro is the Count's servant. 
and Susanna is the Countess's servant. But really, the Count wants to get Susanna closer because he's got a thing for her. Now, without getting into too many details, because I could go on forever about this show, the, one of the main cruxes of this show is this idea of prima nocta. The Counts, at the time, because of their position, they could be the first person to have sex with any peasant on the night of their wedding before the husband. Obviously, wrong, but that's how it was. And so his whole idea is, well, she'll just be closer and she's cute and blah, blah, blah. She informs Figaro about this. Of course, he's mad. And so the whole gist of the show is trying to not make that happen. As we go through the show, we're introduced, obviously, eventually to the Countess, and then also everybody's favorite 15-year-old boy, Carabino, who has a thing for the Countess. And, of course, he's hormones ablaze. And he's also a thorn in the Count's side. And he every time something bad happens for the Count, uh, Carabino is usually the cause of it. Eventually... The Count comes in to visit Susanna and before the wedding and like, hey, how, how you doing? And remember the things that we talked about and all this stuff. And the thing is, is that prior to that scene, Carabino was in the room talking to Susanna. So Carabino's hiding. And eventually the Count is talking about how he went to Barbarina's house. And he's telling this story and Barbarina is uh, all acting weird and then as he is telling the story about this he discovers carabino and so of course he's mad and carabino's trying to not die because the count literally either would kill him in that moment or wants to get him done instead of doing that for once he did something good and he just sent him off to war so he doesn't do it himself he's like you know what just get out okay so that's pretty much the end of act one act two the Countess comes on. She's, of course, she knows what's going on with the Count, uh, at least that he's not faithful to her. She's upset about it. Susanna tries to comfort her. Eventually, Carabino comes back. Um, and there's this whole, like, thing, you know, because it's an older lady with a 15-year-old boy, which, of course, now in today's terms is not at all cool. Cause, but back then, age differences like that and the actual age of Carabino was a separate issue. And so Carabino sings a song to her. Eventually the Count knocks on the door, so Carabino has to hide. And Count suspects something's going on. And the Countess is trying to make up excuses uh, as to what it might be. But then he's like, no, I'm going to figure this out. And he leaves. So Carabino um, has to jump out the window. <laughs> and he's freaking out. He runs out, okay? Count comes back in. Oh, and prior to... Sorry. Prior to Carabino jumping out the window... He, the Count hears something, and he thinks it's, yeah, he thinks it's Carabino. So that's why he goes out to get, like, a, a hatchet or something. Okay, so when he comes back in, the thing is, is that, remember that Carabino and Susanna and the Countess were all in the room prior to the Count coming. So actually, when Carabino jumps out of the window, Susanna goes into the closet. Okay, so now the Count thinks that Carabino's in the closet, he comes in, Susanna, so now he's got to apologize. There's this hu humanity relationship thing going on. And then a bunch of craziness ensues because Figaro comes in and they're trying to figure out what happened to this guy who jumped out the window because Antonio comes in and tells the Count that somebody, he's in the garden, somebody jumped out the window, messed up his, <laughs> his flowers because he's the gardener and he's, of course, upset about it. Yeah, it's just a bunch of chaos 
act, this, the second mm-hmm. act, sorry, this is kind of long-winded, but um, then eventually we get into the crux of some of the uh, the bad stuff that happens, which is the Count comes out at the beginning of Act 3, and he is, like, really upset because he wants to be with Susanna, and he also insinuates that the, the Countess is too stupid to figure out what he's doing. Susanna comes on, and he has this plan, or she has this plan to help the Countess get through the situation and to catch the Count in his act. Okay, they have this duet where she promises to meet him in the garden later. Uh, and that's all well and good. She leaves, but then right as she's leaving, Figaro peeks around the corner and is like, hey, what's up? It's, and she's like, everything's going to plan. And then they walk off and the Count is like, wait, wait, wait. They have a plan? And then he really wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. Okay, fast forward through a lot more. We get to the end of the opera. And uh, they're at night. She's meeting in the garden. And the Count is trying to figure out who's who. But actually, it's the Countess is in the garden dressed as Susanna. And so when the Count comes in, because it's dark, he doesn't realize that it's the Countess. So he's like acting as if it's Susanna and like flirting with her, all this stuff. And of course, he doesn't know that it's the Countess. And then later on, at the end of the opera, the Count is trying to accuse the Countess of um, wrongdoing because Figaro and Susanna, because Susanna comes on later and Figaro also, they do Arias, blah, blah, blah. He sees Figaro and who he thinks is the Countess because Susanna is dressed as the Countess. And so he tries to catch essentially Figaro doing things with the Countess. He, of course, is mad, tries to make a fuss. And then he's like, I'm not going to accept this kind of behavior. And then, as per usual with dramatic scenes, the Countess comes out and is like, oh, really? You're not going to accept it? And then he realizes that because she is dressed as Susanna still, that he was actually the one who was doing the bad stuff all along. And on top of that, well, he knew he was doing bad stuff, but on top of that, it's in front of everybody. He's humiliated. But in the end... We do have a moment which many people disagree as to whether, because they do make up. And it's a beautiful moment, really simple music. It's one of my favorite uh, just little vignettes in that show and in a Mozart opera just in general. Uh, but then the end of the show, of course, they people who are thinking, well, okay, so they made up in that moment, but do they really stay together? And then there are some directors that will take the idea of, no, she shouldn't put up with that and by the end like they make up in that moment in front of everybody but then as the play out of the show which isn't that much more they basically drift apart um it's kind of the same thing they do with cozy where people do or do not end up together depending on who's directing it at the end of the show so long-winded it's a long well the show's like what three hours long that uncut it's nearly full yeah so it, it it's a long haul but it's it's really really good um and there's so many clips of it online if you want to just dabble in there and there's other characters too that i didn't even mention like bartolo and marcellina oh and i forgot because i forgot one of my favorite comedic moments uh in this whole show so part of figaro's issue is that he has a lot of debt and bartolo has a lot of money. In order to pay some debts, Bartolo and Marcellina have worked out this thing because Marcellina is like this old lady who has a crush on Figaro. And Figaro, of course, is getting married. But even on top of that, he doesn't like her that way. But then it comes out in this one scene that Figaro 
is actually the child of Marcellina and Bartolo. And so they have this really wonderful reconnecting and like kind of setting aside all their issues. And of course, the Count is is pissed. And then Susanna comes on. And while Figaro is hugging Marcellina and she's got the money to pay for Figaro's debts and she sees this thing where Figaro is essentially hugging his nemesis at that point, other than the Count. She's like, what, what's going on? And Figaro's like, well, look, it's my mom and dad. And she's like, your mom and dad? <laughs> and she's like, no, it really is. And she actually just, I, I forgot to mention this one. She's like, he's basically saying like, no, 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 it's not what it is. It's not what it is. And she slaps him. She's like, no, 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 I know what it is. I know you men. You're just like the Count. I can't believe you on our wedding. Could you? How? How? You know, that whole like overreaction. But there's the the reuniting and happy families and, and all this stuff. And then basically everybody's against the Count at that point. Or at least not in favor of. Let me put it that way. So... Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) No, it really is um, a great opera. And like I know we said that like uncut it's four hours, but everyone cuts it. So it's more like two and a half to three. Yeah. There are just things that aren't parts of it that aren't performed anymore. The great thing about this opera is it is still widely performed. You can, you know throw a dart and no matter where you throw it you're gonna find a company that's doing it in the oh, US. Totally. another great comedic opera is johnny skiki by puccini it's only about an hour long and it usually is performed with one of the other operas that he wrote it with so he wrote three operas that were supposed to be performed together but they're not done that way anymore yeah so it's called il tritico il taboro which is the cloak and it's a serious drama. And then you have Johnny Skiki, which is the funny, the funny one. Mm-hmm. And then um, Suor Angelica, which um, was Puccini's favorite opera, by the way. But anyways, Johnny Skiki is um, set during the early Renaissance period. And what has happened is there's a group of, it's either four or f- I think it's five uh, people who are, who are related to this character called Buozo. And Buozo has died. And they're all fighting over what, you know, what they're going to get out of his will. Mm-hmm. So first they ha- they the, he's dead and and they have they have a notary come right to to finish the will which they've they've found the will and they've you know read through it like what are they gonna get you know one of the things is obviously the property right there's yeah. property and there's a mill a mill for um, grains right and not like a a personal mill like a big yeah mill, and um, a donkey and so they're all fighting over who's gonna get what. And this, the the whole, you know, opera is called Johnny Skiki. And he actually is not a family member, but an individual who comes in and they, you know, they're like, okay, so if you pretend to be Buozo, you know, because they all, they've all found him dead, but the notary mm-hmm. doesn't know he's dead. You know, they bargain with Skiki to pretend to be Buozo long enough for the notary to rewrite the mm-hmm. will so that they get get what they want. So they're all bargaining with him and um, I'm going to be much more succinct and spoiler alert. Um, he he tricks them all and he uh, he takes everything. <laughs> it's a great 
great opera and probably the most famous part of it, of course, is the aria Il Mio Babino Caro by Lauretta as she's trying to convince her dad to give her something. Mm-hmm. It's an hour long. It's usually put with another one of the operas, or sometimes it's done with Pagliacci mm-hmm. um, by Leon Cavallo. And um, I think it's great for the fact that it's short and it's, you know, has has so many different characters and just uh, a ridiculous situation, but also a situation that, that happens in life. Mm-hmm. People do this to their family members. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh People my goodness! Are terrible. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm gonna go off of that one. A couple things. One, actually, you 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 mentioned that this happens to people. This literally happened uh, in my family with my grandparents. I'm not gonna get into that, but it's it's potentially horrendous. Goes all the way to getting lawyers involved, and it yeah. it get, it yeah, gets absolutely. ugly. And the reason why I bring that up is because again. There are so many things that are relatable in these shows, even though many of them were written centuries ago. They don't have, it's not like only the modern operas are relatable. No, no, no. There's, there's plenty there. And then I'll talk about one more, even shorter, not to one up you, Rachel, but I'll give you a shorter opera that's also comedic, and that is The Telephone by Minotti. And this just suffice it to say, guy comes home, He's been dating this girl for who knows how long, but he wants to propose to her. But he's got to go out of town on business, and so he's got a little window of time, and she will not get off the damn phone. People keep calling her, and she has her various gossipy things and dramatic things, and he's just like, okay, well, well, can I talk to you just for a second? Can you put that away? I mean, how is that not relatable? To today, I did right. this show uh, as an outreach tour to elementary schoolers in 20, 2016 or seventeen, something like that. Even kids get it. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> kindergartners can understand this show. And spoiler alert: at the end of the day, he eventually like storms off, and she's like, "Well, wait, wait a minute. Maybe he was trying to tell me something. Maybe it was important. Maybe I was kind of a colossal idiot." He eventually calls her from the airport and is like, hey, will you marry me? And she's like, of course I will. It's really cute. Uh, And also very easy to produce if you are one of those types listening to this podcast. It's a real winner. It's only two characters. Yeah, it's just uh, Ben and I can't remember what the Sopranos name is. That's okay. They can look it up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, we've given you a glimpse into what these comic operas are, are like. Let's just kind of run through a list of comic operas. So we mentioned the Mozart operas, Magic Flute, Leonardo di Figaro, Cosi Fan Tutte, The Abduction from Seraglio. Don Giovanni is sometimes, like, it's dramatic, but there's there's funny parts in it. Yeah. Right? Leporello's whole character. A few by Donizetti. We have Lesir d'Amore, Don Pasquale, La Fille du Regiment, Falstaff by Verdi, which is a um, Shakespeare play. There's a Twelfth Night opera, which is also oh, yeah, another right. Shakespeare play that's, you know, very famous. And I think there's a Cyrano de Bergiac opera. I might have to double check that one. I'm not sure. Hmm. Nearly every Rossini opera is a comedy. <laughs> yeah. So just, you know... <clears throat> Find a Rossini opera, they're all funny. Massonet has Cendrillon, which is pretty funny, right? The mm-hmm. Cinderella story, although we don't necessarily think of it as funny, anytime you have the stepsisters and the mother, the, I don't know, that 
it doesn't matter who who sets it they seem to make a big deal out of making their characters just so ridiculous that they're funny yeah exactly deflator mouse i like to put this one in here ariadne auf naxos by strauss oh yeah it's a the whole the whole like play within a play Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole situation is they're putting on a a play for the royalty member that that they've been uh, hired by and Mm -hmm. trying to get it all together and all that. So it's I think that that's a good one. Yeah. Um, How about you, Mike? You got some? Well, well, I was just going to say one composer that often is not associated with comedy. And I'm not even going to say that this is a barn burner in comedic fashion, but Wagner wrote one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, that guy. Uh Meisterzinger is yep. technically a comedic opera. Yes. Obviously a lot of Offenbach is. If you're going to go with, you know, Rossini, it's basically all comedic. The other duo that's like that is Gilbert and Sullivan, of course. Right, yes, Operetta. Yeah, if we're yeah. going into that category. Gounod wrote a piece called Le Médecin Malgré, and it's basi- it's a really funny story. Again, this is a, a shorter opera. I don't know how long it is, though, and it's only, like, four characters, I think. But I did an aria from it, and to just give you an idea of how this thing starts out, uh, you have a husband and wife who apparently have issues at home, and they get in an argument, and the dude is a lumberjack, and he he thinks it's a good idea to get drunk and go talk to his wife. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no, like killing or anything like that and then there's these two friends that are like trying to help them through it Uh, another one you know if we're going with these shorter shows one show that we talked about both in the podcast and prior to recording is uh servo padrona okay so we we did mention that one and then another one is called pimpinone which is by telemon which a lot of people call the pimpinone the b version of uh servo padrona like servo padrona is a little bit better but it's basically the uh-huh. same story. Yeah. And I think it's hilarious because they, I mean, it's great music. I, I happen to be partial to the Baroque period. I, I think the music's just great. But it's it's very good at playing, uh, you know, the, the duets and stuff between each other and the the relationship dynamics that often happen between men and women. You know, Bohem is kind of like Giovanni where it's half and half. Once you get past that, it's more like there's comedic scenes in opera, but the the thing may not necessarily be a full comedic opera like we would expect. Yeah, I mean, you have uh, Lahar who's written some comedic operas and um, Flato, and there's some other Johann Strauss operas, the guy who wrote Fledermouse. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple operas I wanted to mention, Carabini's Alibaba. I saw a company did a production of that, and it looked hilarious. I didn't see it, but it looked very good. And then um, an opera that got a lot of love when it was premiered was Le Dame Blanche by French composer François-Andrien Boisdieu. You know, if you want to look into that, it's supposed to be pretty funny. And then I just wanted to mention... Oh, and The Love of Three Oranges by Prokofiev is getting like a... A huge mm. revival right now throughout the United States and Europe, which is this this um, man goes into the desert with a clown, I think. And he's like trying to discover, like find his love, his true love. And these three oranges turn into three princesses. And it's a really strange setting, but 
um, see, people seem to love the opera. Um, some So a list of kind of like modern operas that are in the comic vein. We have the Pants Opera, which is a short opera um, having to do with the whole 2016 election with Trump and Hillary. Mm-hmm. Bon Appetit by Lee Hoiby. Uh, oh, and he also did The Italian Lesson. That's another great short yeah. comedic opera. And then Sweeney Todd, and this is one of those like uh, done by musical theater companies and done by opera companies. It kind of falls in between, is a dark comedy. Yeah. Let's <laughs> call it that. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> and then Great Scott by Jake Heggie is this kind of farce situation about an American opera company that's trying to survive and they're having a this production and they're trying to make enough money to keep the opera company going and this football team is having their national championship on the same night so that's this crazy situation that the opera company has to overcome and then the last opera which i think just came out a couple years ago is connection lost the tender opera yeah it came out in 2016 and uh the whole thing is on youtube actually it's Mm-hmm. about 12 minutes long so yeah there's there are modern operas that are comedic but it seems that there are far fewer that are making it on major opera stages which you know mike and i will discuss shortly why why we believe that is and um for me i think that opera companies have a hard time taking a risk um and, yeah, and we're obviously talking about this in in the pre-pandemic timeline there are very few opera companies doing any opera right now yeah it's a it's pretty hard to do it with excuse me it's pretty hard to do it with uh all the various restrictions in different states and then actually it's interesting i was uh talking to a friend yesterday who happens to work at seattle opera he was mentioning you know they they had canceled the the next show in the fall and they're just taking it one opera at a time, which I think is smart. You know, companies yeah. can do what they want. But I think that we just don't know when things are going to open up. So I think canceling to like to a particular date in the future may or may not be the best strategy. And so they're taking it one yep. step at a time. I think yeah. that's good. But he mentioned that even if they lifted the restrictions for arenas and stuff like that, how many people are going to go? Yeah, right? exactly. It, it, it's just tough for, for companies. Obviously, all the performers like us involved. Yeah, whether we want to be a part of it. Now, uh, going back to why it, some companies don't really do these modern comedic operas, I definitely agree with Rachel. There is the, the financial risk. And I think it's two other things. One, it's not like there aren't funny people out there, right? There's mm-hmm. plenty of funny people that know how to write. I don't know. Maybe I'm tooting my own horn. I think I'm a pretty funny person in the things that I write, but I also understand that the things that I write, because sometimes I do want to push the envelope, um, some companies may think that if, like, let's say they're okay with it, but the thing gets produced and then they get backlash from it, they, yeah. they don't want to deal with that. There's that whole thing. There's also, and this is a legit thing and it's a good thing, but they're also... There can be balance, too. There are a lot of stories that have never, ever, ever been told in opera. Specifically, things with LGBT and other situations with race. I mean, yes, we have the 
token shows, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. the Porgy and Besses, the Mikados, the Madam Butterflies, all that stuff. Yeah, those have been done for a while, although Porgy and Besses really exploded the last few years. But there's a lot of new operas that are being written about race in a different way and also taking into consideration things that have happened after Porgy, right? Like they had the Central Park Five opera. That was in the Mm -hmm. 70s or 80s when it happened and it just recently was made into an opera. So those are legitimate things that are good because I don't think any story should not be told in any art form. Like I'm, not to spoil anything, but I'm currently working on a human trafficking opera. Oh, cool. That's one about Jeffrey Epstein. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Epstein being in the public eye the way that he is now did not happen until what? A year and a half ago to where it was getting lots of news and all that. Uh, So it might have been two, maybe three years, some small mentions, but yeah, really exploded in the the last year and a half. There's there's lots of things that need to be done or or that are interesting stories that people can relate to, which, again, they don't all have to be comedic. But there's reasons why I think there's been such a focus in, and obviously with those shows, it's not only something that people relate to, but it also brings potentially brings in new audiences. Because for a long time, yeah. my understanding is there may have been people in the LGBT community that's like, well, you're yes, you have many artists that happen to be LGBT. That's wonderful. But you're not mm-hmm. telling stories I can relate to or I can only relate to so much. Yeah. It's good that you're now doing these other things. Yeah. I guess my thing about it is like we have things like Saturday Night Live, which I mean, Saturday Night Live's been on the air, what? Uh, 45 years probably at this point. Yeah. It hasn't lost popularity in the last five years, has it? It's People love Saturday Night Live. With Saturday Night Live and its viewership, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it's because there are a lot of people who don't like, from what I've read, the, the direction it's going in. So you're losing okay. some of those older fans, but you're gaining new ones, essentially, because yeah. of the direction it's going. So I, right. I don't know. I kind of don't understand why opera companies or composers aren't investing in having a certain number of things be comedic operas in their season, or, I don't know, you know, starting a, an opera improv night. Oh, I love that idea. Just see what happens, you know? That's I, I don't know what the deal is. And actually, you know what? I think I'm going to refute the point that I just made earlier. Because <laughs> it goes into my soapbox that I did the the last time we, we published mm-hmm. something. Because you bring up a really great point about Saturday Night Live. And I would even add into that things like South Park, Family yeah. Guy, Simpsons. Mm-hmm. These TV shows, they always get backlash yet they're still here you could even go back as far as monty python maybe and how ridiculous that was for its time sure why then are companies so afraid because again it's it's kind of like we just talked about with saturday night live yes you'll lose some fans potentially but you'll gain others and mm-hmm. one of the things we've talked about a lot on this podcast is how do we get younger newer audiences you're not yeah. going to get it if you do the same stupid thing over and over and over again. You got to reach yeah. these people in a new way. And maybe especially especially since you know across the United States that subscriptions to an entire season at uh, opera companies has been down for at least 5 to 10 years. Oh, that totally. used to be what what would keep 
opera companies alive and they've had to change their strategies and try and reach new audiences that that aren't the target audience that they used to advertise to a lot of people just in general are not thinking because they can't most of the time aren't thinking that far ahead even if they have the money because i'm sure the subscription Mm -hmm. part of the problem is the cost right even though it's probably cheaper than buying them individually yes the cost number one but two they may not know what they're they're going to be doing then or this whole idea of fomo right the fear of missing out well what if you buy the subscription then you got this amazing event that you don't know about when you buy it and then you have to cancel. You may not be able to sell the tickets to someone else and you're out that money and all this stuff. So it's just easier to buy one show at a time and potentially pay more for that show. But then you're not losing it because you can't go or don't want to go to a particular show because you bought the season. Yeah, exactly. I think definitely the adaptation. Some companies have been more successful at that than others. But I think if they focus also more on the kinds of shows that they're doing and reach a broader audience, whether they like it or not, they have to acknowledge just based on what you can see in our society and in the news and all this stuff. I think it's pretty fair to say that everybody would agree that we are pretty divided right now as a country. I'm not going to get into why we're divided, but we are. Mm -hmm. So logically speaking, Would it not make sense to, like, let's say you take a company like Seattle who does five shows a year, okay? Why don't you pick, say, two that's going to definitely appeal to everybody, regardless of whatever their political or social leanings are? You have one for group A, one for group B, so now you're Mm -hmm. at four shows, and then you can take the fifth show and have it be a wild card. Whether depending on the the shows that you're doing, it could be one, again, that's for everybody. So you make up any losses or, Mm -hmm. you know, because this this situation is not going to go away quickly, regardless of who gets elected in our country. That's that's one thing that I've always seen and have tried to be the (laughs) the uh, megaphone on when it comes to. When you do something new or different, you're slanting it in only one direction. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not going to work out for you long term. Yeah. Well, and I, and, and I think a lot of people assume that comedy is going to have a political slant. But there are definitely plenty of co- types of comedy that don't have to be that way, right? Oh, totally. And I, I think um, if a company is not wanting to be political, that they can find those types of stories or create those types of stories. And it goes into the whole ballot idea that you're talking about. Why are there not more people like me? And I'm trying really not to toot my horn, but I think it's just (laughs) such a simple idea. Why don't you find some people, especially in if you're in a major metropolitan city, you're telling me there's no writers there? Really? Right. Nobody that's funny. You have to go with one of these other people... Now, of course, you can argue, okay, there's name recognition, so maybe that helps with a writer. Okay, fine. But why not rewrite these shows so that, like, you can take music that's already been written. That's the... That is the thing. You can take the best music, put it together, so at least... A, you know they won't be complaining about the music. It won't suck unless you just suck at picking music, which that's a bigger problem, I think, for your company. Right. And obviously with with opera, you know, primarily being the, you know, what we consider like the golden age of opera all being 
prior to public domain, it's really easy to take that material and rewrite the story slash words, you know, like we said, you, it doesn't all have to be from the same show. It can be from different shows and you can create whatever sort of narrative you want. Yeah. One of my favorite shows. And sadly, because I lived out in New York, the only show I've ever seen was when I did an audition at the, at the Met, at least. The only show I ever saw at the Met, and it was only because I was doing an audition in New York uh, a while ago, was The Enchanted Island, which mm-hmm. is a pastiche, which is the same kind of idea where you're taking different music from all kinds of... The theme was Baroque operas, okay? Mm-hmm. Or Baroque music. So they took all kinds of stuff from that, and then they rewrote a story about this enchanted island. And it was so cool. There's no reason why companies cannot do that and find somebody who happens to be hilarious they have to also concede to a little bit that there are going to be things that are funny not that aren't going to be funny to them but will be funny to somebody in the audience that's one of the things with opera companies and i don't have numbers so i'm going out on a limb but my assumption is is that a lot of the people who are in the leadership of these companies and especially in the musical staff and like who chooses what shows, they're all of a particular political and social leaning. Mm-hmm. I don't really think it's very diverse. There may be one person that bucks against it. We all know that the yeah, the administration level of opera companies across honestly the world is not very diverse. And that is yeah. that is an issue. Yeah, it's a huge issue. So let's say your board or who's ever making those decisions is, you know, six people and four of them don't find a few of the jokes funny. But the two that actually get them find them hysterical. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do the show because it was six or four to two. Comedy is, a, is such a, a relative thing. Like I happen to be one of those people who loves dark humor And the Mm -hmm. more horrendous it is, because I know that they're doing it on purpose to be horrendous. I know that they're not actual statements. Some people blur those lines, whatever. That's their prerogative. It's just something that you can't throw away a show just because a few of the jokes weren't to your tasting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of, I mean, I like dark comedy as well. And I also really like witty comedy. That's probably my favorite I think we, we've we kind of covered all we want to cover on this topic, but um, we'd love to hear from you listeners what what you'd like to see in a comedic opera show. Or if you have a plot idea, you know, is, is there a, a favorite story that you've read that you're like, why is this not an opera? Let's get the idea out there in the world. Um, leave us a comment and let us know. We'll even post, uh, Rachel and I were talking prior to uh, recording about some of our favorite scenes in operas. We didn't mention a bunch of them in this podcast. We can put together a little playlist like we did with the Ultimate Opera playlist of just stuff to go with this. You can just check them out and see that there are really funny moments. And then also some other ones that are just cool. That way you can you can see more than just somebody stabbing another person and think that that's opera. Um, (laughs) So thanks for listening to this podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your thoughts and requests. So leave us a comment below. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, 
www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. You can help support the creation of this and much more content for as little as $3 a month. Like and subscribe to our channel and also follow us on Instagram at opera unbound to stay updated. Ciao.